Welcome to Public Health On Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Our focus is the novel coronavirus. I'm Josh Sharfstein, a faculty member at Johns Hopkins and also a former secretary of Maryland's health department. Our goal with this podcast is to bring evidence and experts to help you understand today's news about the novel coronavirus and what it means for tomorrow. If you have questions, you can email them to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. That's publichealthquestion at jhu.edu for future podcast episodes. It's Friday, so today I'm asking an expert at the Center for Health Security at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health some questions submitted by our listeners to our email address, publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. Our respondent is Dr. Amesh Amalja, senior scholar at the center. He's also a physician trained in internal medicine, emergency medicine, infectious disease, and critical care. Let's listen. Dr. Adalja, thank you so much for joining me today. Now, I know you're a senior scholar at the Center for Health Security at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, but you're also a physician trained in internal medicine, emergency medicine, infectious disease, and critical care. So how have you been spending your days lately? So it's been a bit of a mix. There's some days that I'm rounding on the infectious disease service, taking care of patients with coronaviruses and also uh, answering questions about coronavirus from all corners of the hospital. Sometimes I'm doing a night shift in the ICU, taking care of patients with uh, critical illness from coronavirus as well as other critically ill patients. And then there's been some ER shifts where I've worked as well. In the mix between all of that, I'm working on things at the Center for Health Security, coming up with project ideas related to the coronavirus and doing a lot of media on this uh, topic. Well, I can only imagine how busy you are, so I really appreciate your time. So we'll jump in. We've been taking questions through our email address, publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. Are you ready? Yep. Okay, the first one is, what's new this week? What have we learned this week about the novel coronavirus? Well, we've learned that there are ways that social distancing can work and that we've seen some benefit of that. For example, in New York City, where hospitalization rates have been decreasing, where case counts may be coming down. And that shows that social distancing, when executed properly, can can do what it's intended to do and decrease the intensity of transmission. And I think all eyes... Even in New York. Yeah, even in New York, even with a place with a very high population density, it can work if it's done properly. And I do think that that's going to help set the tone for the rest of the country as we move through the different phases of this pandemic, knowing that social distancing can preserve hospital capacity. Great. Here's a question. Is the coronavirus pandemic caused by 5G cell phone towers? No, there's no relationship between 5G cell phone towers and viruses that I know about. So I think this is another piece of misinformation that's out there that really has no biological plausibility and really should just be uh, dismissed. It's kind of a a notion that I, I can't understand where it actually originated from, but no, there's no evidence of it. Thank you. Okay. What about um, the masks that the CDC is now recommending for the public to wear cloth masks? Should they be washed after each use? Yes, they should be washed after each use. And some of us are worried that people are not going to take care of those masks properly if they choose to wear them. And and they may end up inadvertently contaminating things in their house or contaminating other people with their masks. So we want to make sure that if people are using homemade masks, that they're actually keeping them clean and taking care of them in the appropriate manner and not exposing people to unnecessary risk. 
Great. I think the CDC even had some washing guidelines online about that. What do you think about all the talk about hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, and some of these medicines that the president and others are promoting as cures for coronavirus infection? So I don't think it's the best thing for the president to be talking about a drug for which he himself can't prescribe and doesn't necessarily have the medical expertise to talk about. But I I do think that there is a little bit of a nuance to it, and it's kind of a false alternative being set up that either you're on one side of this with hydroxychloroquine for everybody and another side where nobody gets hydroxychloroquine. And I think the truth is really in between. We do know that there are in vitro studies that show hydroxychloroquine has an effect against, against viruses. So when I say in vitro, that means in a lab setting. And we've got some anecdotal reports from other countries where they've used hydroxychloroquine and and it may have been beneficial. But we're not going to know that for sure until there's a randomized controlled trial where we can actually figure out what the proper dose is, how long you need to give it, who benefits from it, who doesn't benefit from it. And in that vein, what I've done with hydroxychloroquine and my patients, they've all been inpatients. I've prescribed it a couple of times and both times it's been adherent to a strict protocol where we're thinking about what the risk is for this patient and what the benefit might be. And I think that's a more reasoned way to do it because we can prescribe it because it is approved for other conditions. But I think you need to do it in a thoughtful, mindful way and not giving it out to everybody. And it really should be part of an antimicrobial stewardship program like we use for any other anti-infective therapy. And so what you're saying is that it may be at the current time, doctors may choose to use it for a patient to essentially give it a try. But what you really hope is for there to be studies that definitively answer the question of whether it works. Right. I myself want guidance on how to use it based on clinical trial data. I have used it before based on protocols, but I want to know for sure, is it helping my patient or not helping my patient? And the only way we're going to get that answer is through a randomized controlled trial. Got it. Take us inside the hospital. One of the questions we got is, what is it like for doctors right now and for nurses? So I practice in Pittsburgh, which has not been hit very hard with the coronavirus compared to other cities. There's about 100 patients or so that are hospitalized across different hospitals here, and we've only had six deaths. But hospital operations have been changed. So when I go into the hospital, I'm met by a a desk where they ask me if I have symptoms, and then they offer me a mask. One hospital actually does a fever scan of me when I go into the hospital to see if I have a fever before I'm allowed to go in. When you go into the hospitals, they're really quiet in Pittsburgh right now because we don't have a lot of cases and elective surgeries have been limited, clinic visits have been limited, we're limiting visitors, limiting other people in the hospital, so they're kind of eerily quiet. And when you go to the floors where there are coronavirus patients, you see a lot of people in personal protective equipment, people taking care of patients through the windows, trying to avoid as many times going into the room as much as possible. And I I think there's a sense that everybody's in this together in the hospital. It's actually in Pennsylvania, we have a stay-at-home order. But when you're in the hospital, it actually is a little bit kind of refreshing because there are other people there and you kind of feel the camaraderie of being around doctors and nurses and physician assistants and pharmacists and all the rest of everybody. And I think in many ways, uh, I actually look forward to going to the hospital because of that camaraderie that you miss when you're kind of sitting at home. Got it. That's very interesting. And uh, I hope everybody there realizes how much their work is appreciated. How is regular care affected? You mentioned that the clinics are quiet, the hospital's quiet because there aren't other kinds of patients. I think there are a lot of people who have conditions that are worried they won't be able to have them taken care of. And we get a number of questions about that. What's your response? So I think this is a real question that hasn't really gotten much societal discussion because we do know that when we focus on something like coronavirus, that other diseases may end up kind of festering along because it's hard, for for example, for patients to get a screening colonoscopy, which might be elective, which means it has some flexibility in its timing, but not infinite flexibility. And there are people with cardiac conditions who can't get in to see their cardiologists. I, I recently interacted with a psychiatric patient who decompensated because he couldn't go to group therapy. 
there are people that are really worried about how how long they can allow patients with chronic illnesses to be managed by telemedicine and how much reticence they might have from going to the hospital before it actually has consequences. And I think we will probably see a bump sometime down the down the road with some of these chronic illnesses that aren't getting expeditious treatment. Because if you go to the emergency department, you're not seeing very many people come in at all. So I don't know where all the heart attack patients and stroke patients and 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 people with abdominal pain and all of these emergencies have gone. They've all they, they could there's no reason that they shouldn't have went down in incidents, but we're not seeing as many of them. And people that are coming in, the admission rate is very high. So if you come to the emergency department, it used to be that most things were just sent home because they weren't really emergencies. But now almost everybody that comes to the emergency room has, has to be admitted. So there are patients in between that I'm worried about where they, where they are and, and what's going to happen to them. Got it. That's going to be something to keep a close eye on. Are there a lot of clinical studies going on in the hospital these days? Are, are, are most patients or... A good number of patients getting into clinical trials to assess all kinds of different therapies? I think in academic medical centers, you will see many different trials being pushed out to the patients and, and people enrolling in them. They're trying antiviral therapies. They're trying hydroxychloroquine. They're trying immune-modulating drugs that we use for other conditions. Lots of trials going on. There's been uh, dozens and dozens of them in, in China. And hopefully, we'll start to get some readouts from these trials so that can help us guide our patients, guide our care with patients and, and get better outcomes. Great. Thank you. Now, you are a critical care physician. I think there are a lot of questions that we've gotten about, you know, going on a breathing machine, going on a ventilator. And for coronavirus patients, is that a step that almost always means that the person is going to die? Does it mean that it can actually help and people will come off it? And if they do come off it and they're able to recover, are they going to be left with permanent problems with their lungs, for example. So for people who need to be on mechanical ventilation, it is absolutely life-saving that it buys time for the lungs to heal and be able to deliver oxygen to your body. But it is something that does carry with it a mortality rate. So we know that people who are on a ventilator, that the case fatality ratio, how many of them are going to survive is probably about about 50%. So you do have a decrease in survival, not because you're on the machine, but because your disease is so severe that it requires that machine. So if you need a mechanical ventilator, it's crucial that you be placed on one. And that's why there's so many national discussions about the supply of mechanical ventilators. Once you're on that ventilator, you may be on it. I've had patients that have been on it for you know, seven to 10 days, which is a little bit longer than many other types of pneumonia. And depending upon the severity of the lung damage that's accrued, you may be left with weeks to months of having decreased lung capacity, which might mean you get winded doing ordinary tasks because of the damage that the virus and your immune system did to your to your lungs. And this is what we see not just with coronavirus, but with any condition that puts you on a ventilator that's involving an infection, whether it's influenza, whether it's a bacterial pneumonia, you do have this longer tail to, this, to these symptoms because the lung damage and the lung function has been compromised for so long. And people can get better over time, not necessarily all the way back to their baseline, but some cases, but there is improvement from that. Right. You do see improvement over time. They may not get all the way back to 100% of what they were before, but they do with time, with cardiopulmonary rehabilitation, with exercise, get back to a better baseline. This next one's a difficult question, but I'm going to ask it, which is if someone just wrote in, um, should I fill out an advanced directive? Advanced directives are really important parts of regular care. And I think that it's on people's minds now because of a pandemic and they're hearing about people dying and that's prompted people to think about it. But this is something we should be doing all the time anyway, especially for people who are of advanced age or have other medical conditions who maybe live in a nursing home or an assisted living facility. So I do think that thinking about 
advanced directives, thinking about palliative care, all of that is really important. Because especially if you think about nursing homes and how it, this uh, proportionally they can be impacted, many of those patients, they all really need to make their wishes known for what should happen to them if, if they end up in a hospital. And I think that will help us deal with deal with the surge of patients that we may be getting, understanding what people would, would want us to do for them. And this is something we do all the time in nursing homes. It's just now this has become more important and pressing, but it is something that's long overdue in general with taking care of patients that have, have other conditions or of an advanced age and may not want everything done to them. Great. Thank you. When we're thinking about the situation we're in with our economy, with the intense social distancing that has shut so many things down, people are asking, you know, are we going to be able to open up? I, I think there's a greater realization that it might not be like flipping a switch that suddenly everything's back to the way it was, but that it might be a little bit more gradual. But, but how do you think about that? I think it definitely is going to be something gradual and it's going to really be based on what's going on with the virus in your community and what's going on with your hospital capacity. Does your hospital have enough ability to take care of patients with this condition? Do you have enough diagnostic tests to be able to find new cases? When when you lift restrictions, there's going to be more cases that invariably occur because this virus isn't going to disappear magically. So you have to be able to find those cases and isolate them. Is your health department adequately staffed to take care of it? Have they made the appropriate hires and, and have the capacity to do it? So for example, where I live in Allegheny County in Pennsylvania, they've actually been using medical students to help them with case finding. So do they have that capacity? Do they have that in place? And then can you open certain things with with certain modifications? Can you make things safer? Maybe you open, open a restaurant and maybe you have to decrease its capacity or maybe you have to change the hours or maybe you have to um, open schools with less class shifting between moving between classes. So I don't think it's going to get completely back to normal until we have a vaccine and especially for things like mass gatherings. I think those are probably going to be off the table for some time. I do think that's what it's going to look like. It's really going to be keyed on what happens in New York. And if New York is able to sustain this blow without their hospitals going into crisis, I do think you're going to start people, see people talking about opening up because there is a cost to keeping everything closed down. And I think that cost is measurable and it's not just an economic cost. It is people's you know health that's, that's going to affect. We talked about other conditions and, and there's also just a lot of uh, psychological impact of being locked up and cooped up and not being able to, to live your life that really has to be measured. So I do think that everybody wants to get back to normal, but it's going to take a little bit of time and it has to be done in a really measured and mindful way. And do you also agree that as that happens, it might require at some points tightening things up for a little while to get things back under control before you know going back and forth a little bit? Or do you think it's going to be a steady um, reopening? I do think we have to prepare for the possibility that you might have to tighten back up if things get bad again, because we don't have a vaccine. Hopefully when this virus, and I assume it's going to be back again in the fall, even if, if we get a respite during the summer, that we're going to have to be able to be better able to care for people with this, especially in the midst of a flu season that will be starting at the same time. So we may have some other social distancing recommendations put back into place and people have to be prepared for that. But hopefully we can get our hospitals in shape and our diagnostic testing and our health departments adequately staffed so that we, we don't have to do as much of this again. But I think that is a real possibility if the, if the virus would take off again. But hopefully it will be done in a more measured and, and more nuanced way than, than blanket types of uh, restrictions and so that people can, can actually understand why they're doing what they're doing and it's not as disruptive as, as it is currently. Got it. Well, we're certainly going to, everyone's going to be paying attention to how this works itself out over the next few months and what needs to happen in the fall. These are our questions. Any final comments that you have before we sign off for this week? I think that what we're seeing today is, is something that was predicted by lots of people. We've been talking about pandemic preparedness in this field for a long, long time. And I think it's, it's sometimes frustrating because we don't actually get action until something happens. But this is really should be important for every listener that pandemic preparedness needs to be taken seriously because 
there are steps you can take and, and programs you can put into place that prevent all of this from happening. And I think this is something that we can't forget and let our policymakers forget about. Right, well said. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Public Health on Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Please send questions to be covered in future podcasts to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. This podcast is produced by Josh Sharfstein, Lindsay Smith-Rogers, and Lamari Morales. Audio production by Niall Owen-McCusker and Spencer Greer, with support from Chip Hickey. Distribution by Nick Moran. Thank you for listening.